0: There's a vicious rumor at the Gooch Lane Church that I can't preach a sermon without going to Genesis 1, 2, or 3. And so to put that to rest, turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's interesting to me how humanity views the devil, views Satan. On the one hand, you have those who are terrified of him. Almost paralyzingly terrified. The idea that he is this all powerful, somewhat all consuming being. So you've got that on one extreme. And then on the other extreme, you have the idea that the devil is much more cartoonish than dangerous. And so he's often depicted as this kind of fun little guy who is always on the wrong side of things, but he's a pretty jolly one to be around. And then in recent years, I don't know if it's a new one or not, but it's one that I've heard more in the past few years than I ever had, and that is that there really is no Satan. That really what you have is just this culmination of evil, and what we've done as humanity is we've kind of taken evil and we've personified it, and we've called it by this name Satan, but it's, it's really just a collection of, of various bad things. Uh, that may sound okay, but I believe the Bible totally disagrees with that idea, don't you? <laughs> that Satan is this just kind of nebulous idea. So the question is, who is he? What does he do? This afternoon, I want to deal with a topic that may sound a little odd uh, at first blush. To call a, a sermon or to bring a topic To say that Satan is not God, that sounds pretty much like Christianity 101, that we all know that. But yet, what I'd like to do this afternoon with you is to explore basically two passages in which we're going to see Satan trying to push himself off as God. Trying to make it look, and maybe more than look, sound like he is God or at least on the same level. And so I want to take us through those two passages. And then what we'll do is we'll take it to a very personal turn and we'll see that how he's tried to do that in the past, we need to make sure that he's not doing it to us because I can assure you he's still trying in all of our lives. So we're here in Genesis chapter 3 and we've got this beautiful, beautiful situation described in chapter 2 where God has created a garden And he lets the water flow and the water meets the dirt and out of this he forms the human and he breathes into the human the breath of life and he puts him in this garden and he says, eat from all of these trees, gives him one exception, we'll talk about in a minute. But he says, every need is supplied. But what I want us to understand is something you already understand if you've spent any time in the book of Genesis. Is that what we're really talking about in Eden is not so much the land of plenty or this place of perfection. It's the idea that it's a paradise because here is where God and human come together. And so in Genesis chapter 2... God has created the man and He's created the woman and He said, I want you to have dominion over this place. I've created you to be a partner with me in all of this and I want to give you this responsibility but what I want to do is to have fellowship with you. And that's the picture that God is desiring for humanity. And as we mentioned this morning... Just somewhat out of the blue in the story, we turn the page to chapter 3, and we've got this serpent showing up in the garden. No explanation who he is, no explanation what he is. Simply, if we're reading the Bible for the first time, we find this very odd circumstance where there is a serpent who is speaking. Now later on, we'll get all the details about that as to who he is and what he is and what he's after. But I want you to think as best you can this afternoon that you're reading this account for the very first time. You're you're new to the Bible. You've read through the the kind of the composite picture of creation in chapter 1. You've you've read the breakdown in chapter 2 of what God created and how and instructions that he's given. And now you come to this talking serpent. So here there's going to be a conversation between Eve and the serpent. And as the serpent begins to talk, he's going to sound a whole lot like someone who may be a savvy to what's going on here. He's going to sound like an expert on things. And so he comes to Eve, if you look here in chapter 3 verse 1, it says the serpent was more crafty or more shrewd than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, <clears throat> you ever known a well-actually person? <laughs> you say something and they say, well, actually. You know, and then you're going to get the diatribe about how wrong you are. It's exactly what he's doing here. And I think the English translations that use that word are capturing the tone of what Satan's trying to do. But he puts it in a very odd way. He says, did God actually say Eve? you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. (laughs) And Eve says, no, that's not it. We can eat of any tree of the garden except this one, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said in the day that we eat of it, or even if we touch it, we'll surely die. And so here's the devil, and he's put himself on an authoritative plane, making it sound like that he knows what he's talking about. And then he's going to follow that by putting himself equally in authority with God. So God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But let's look and see what the serpent says here in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Totally opposite. Total contradiction of what God has told the man and the woman. Well, we take it a step further then. And what we see then is that he begins to cast dispersion on God's authority. And I want to put this up on the screen because I want to highlight a particular part of verse 5. Because here he says, well, you know, Eve, why God has told you all of this. Because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here is where Eve should have stopped him. And for certain, Adam should have, who's standing right there listening to this entire conversation. Because what do we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 about humanity? We are created in the image of God. We're already like God. But what Satan's trying to do is to come along and say, you know, God is being awfully petty with you because he's afraid that you may rival him and I'm here to enlighten you and to make sure you understand that really he's kind of scared of you. He's worried that you're going to get the gig up on him here. And unfortunately what we find is that she falls for that. Eve is deceived, flat out rebellion, Adam then eats. And as the storyline continues, God begins to pronounce punishments and a curse. So we're not going to go through all of this. I want us to look in particular about what he says to the serpent here. If you look on down to verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. So here is this serpent. We oftentimes will say, well, did he have legs before? I think that's the wrong question. I think the better question is, did he have wings before? That seems to be what Revelation is indicating. But yet now God is saying, okay, you're going to be a dirt crawler, you're going to be eating the dust. And the meaning behind that then is, you've lost your place in the heavenly realm. You were created for good. You were created to glorify God. You were created to be a part of this grand world both in the the side of heaven and earth that God has made with his creatures in heaven and his creatures on earth. But you have forfeited all that. You've lost your place there. And the Bible story will flesh that idea out a little bit further. But then let's look at this part. If you go down to verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if we're reading this for the first first time, it's like, I can't wait to get to the next verse to find out what this means. (laughs) What's all this about? That that he's going to get his head bruised, and he's going to bruise somebody's heel, and then God... Is gone. He's changing the topic here. And so he's left this question kind of brooding in the mind of the serpent. Who's going to get me? Who's going to be the one who's going to crush my head? And he's given no clue other than it's going to be a seed of the woman. This one who you deceived, this one who you tricked, into turning against me it's going to be one of her offspring that will be the one who will be your demise you ever wondered what satan thought about for all those years afterwards do you think it ever went something like i wonder if this is the one he sees cain the firstborn of adam he's pretty much the running quickly right Then you come to this man by the name of Noah, and Noah's righteous in the eyes of God, and he's building an ark to save uh, humanity, any that'll get in. Is it him? Well, we see that that's taken off the map a little bit later. Is it Abraham? No. Is it David? Solomon? Is it King Josiah? You can kind of imagine that there is is a bit of worry that's always lurking at the back of the mind of this serpent, wondering who it's going to be, who's going to come, and ultimately destroy him, crush his head. And so we find that that goes on for a number of years. And if the Old Testament does anything, it shows that there is no one worthy of this title. Everybody in the Old Testament is falling. They're making grave mistakes. They're giving themselves over to the serpent, sometimes fully. Sometimes they'll go in that direction, but then come back. But none of them are living the kind of life that's going to typify one who's up to this task of defeating this supernatural force who's out for the destruction of mankind. Until a baby is born in the city of Bethlehem. and What we find in this is the one who looks like he may be the one. This is the one who appears that maybe he's going to to be the destroyer of this wicked being. And so what we find is that there's a time in the life of this Jesus of Nazareth in which he's going to be put to the test. And what the New Testament writers do, especially Mark and Luke, well, Matthew as well, they're going to take this, and I think what they're doing is they're setting it In such a frame to give us the contrast between Eden and what's going on in the life of Jesus so we often refer to these times as the temptations of Jesus though there were no other there were many others but these three are specifically laid out showing us what Jesus is capable of doing And so we think back to Genesis chapter 3. Here's Adam and Eve. They're in the paradise of God. Everything is great. Everything's wonderful. God makes His grand entrance every day. And He walks with them. And He talks with them. And He's explaining things to them. And He wanted to teach them the difference between good and evil in that way. But they forfeited all of that. And yet this one comes along. And the temptations are posed in an anti-Eden setting. The writers give us a couple of indications of that. We're told that Jesus went out into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. And when we think about that area where that would have been, it's a very barren, treeless area. No plant life. And so look at the contrast here. You've got this paradise setting with trees of every shape and form. And yet here is this one who's out in the wilderness, totally away from all of that. And then Mark seems to throw in a, a rather strange uh, connection for us. Mark says, as he's describing this, and there were wild animals there. Now, do you think that's an accident? Well, think back to Eden. In Eden, you had man and woman and God and animals all in happy union here. Everybody's getting along But now this one, who's our potential snake crusher, here he is, he's out in the middle of the desert, and he's got all these animals around that given half a chance, they would have been after him. And so in this setting then, the temptations are going to occur. Now there's a question we might ask. Does Satan know who it is he's tempting? Is he realizing that this is somebody different, or is this just the next one up? Well, I think we can answer that question by looking at some of the surrounding details in the life of Jesus. We know that when Jesus cast out demons, they knew exactly who he was. There's no doubt about that. They would, they would cry out. They would announce who he was, and Jesus would, Don't say it. <laughs> Don't call my name. He didn't want that kind of publicity. He'd kick them out. And so I suspect that if the demons knew who Jesus was, So too did Satan. But things are a little ironic here because here is this creator, the one who brought him into existence, who now has become a son of man. And he's going around uh, talking about himself and he's not saying I'm the great God of heaven. Uh, He's saying the son of man has come. The son of man is going to do this. The human has come. And so as all of this is playing out then, we have to think about what's going on in the mind of Satan. Could God in the flesh be vulnerable like the rest of these folks that he's helped to bring down? Could this one, if I can just get him to sin, can I derail the plan? God's going to be working through him as we think about all of that we have our backdrop set we see now that these temptations why they're highlighted by Matthew Mark and Luke is because of their significant place in showing what Jesus is capable of doing now for our discussion this afternoon I want us to focus in on just one of those and that's the temptation where Satan is seeking to get the Son of Man, this God in the flesh, to bow down and worship it. Now, if you're like me, you read through those temptations and for many, many years, I thought by the time you get to this one, he's to the easy stuff now. Right? Uh, going without food and not turning stones into bread, or, or maybe getting the celebrity of jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Those might have been real temptations. But what about this business of worshiping Satan? I'm more and more convinced this may have been the toughest one of all. And I believe Satan knew that too. And so as the writers are telling us about what's going on, they're going to show us that Satan once again is presenting himself in a very godlike fashion. So we need to think Garden of Eden. We need to think how he comes to Eve and he's using all of this godlike language to try to get her derailed. He's doing the same thing with, with, with Christ here. Now, let's look at some examples of that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, as Matthew is describing this, it says that he took Jesus not just to a mountain. <laughs> But he says, to an exceedingly high mountain. To a really tall mountain is what he's saying. And if you consider that, that fits in very well with the Bible story, doesn't it? Because oftentimes when God would reveal himself in some way, shape, or form, it's going to be on a mountaintop. Ezekiel, I think. Helps us to see that maybe Eden was located on a mountain. But for sure, we think about Sinai. We think about Mount Carmel with Elijah. All of these big things are happening on a mountain. And speaking of Ezekiel, in one of his visions, he's going to use the exact same phrase where God took him to a very high mountain where he's able to see all of these things that are going on. We find Satan imitating God in that. He's putting this in very much a theophonic kind of setting. Then we also find that he's going to use some kind of power to to illustrate his offer. Luke's going to show us this. Luke says in chapter 4, verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I don't know how that operated. But what we do know is it was something that was not natural. Here in in whatever way Satan is letting Jesus look at all these different kingdoms of the world all these different nations of the world again we think about what God does didn't he often employ messages in kind of a miraculous way visions would be given God would speak to people out of a burning bush He's, he's getting this idea from God I'm showing that I'm somebody big here but really what we find is it's the language that gives all this away. What Satan is going to say to Jesus is going to sound very much like God. So let's look at a couple of examples of that. He says to him, first of all, and we'll stay here in Luke chapter 4 for just a little while. In Luke chapter 4, as he's giving these temptations, trying to get the Lord to fail, You look down to verse 6, and it says, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. All right. You ever heard anybody talking about getting authority before? Well... We need only go to Matthew chapter 28 to find that, don't we? In verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let's talk about when those statements are made. As the devil is saying this, this idea of all authority, this is before the crucifixion. As Jesus is using the term, it's after his crucifixion, as his resurrection, where he says, now, all authority has been given to me, but listen to what Satan's doing. He's offering Jesus the opportunity here. He says, I can do this. I can give you this authority. He goes on, and he says, the reason I can do it is because I give it to whom I will. Now, does that sound God-like? Let's go to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. Here's this scene with Nebuchadnezzar who's going to be turned into an animal for a time. Daniel writes, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers the decision by the word of the Holy One to the end that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's a direct quote from God. So here's the devil saying to Jesus, "I got the authority to do this, and I can give this to whom I will." Well let's look at one more. We go on in verse seven. He says, "If then you will worship me, it will all be yours." Does that sound familiar? Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4. Jesus answered and said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes, and what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Every step of the way, Satan is positioning himself to sound like an authority, to sound like he's equal with God, and that there can be dispersion placed on the plan of God. What he tried to do with Jesus was exactly what he did with Eve. But what he's found here is a very different one. Now, let's talk about what the offer is. When we think about the offer, did he have authority over these kingdoms? Well, John 12 indicates that that's the case. And it's not really because of anything special about him. It's only because God delivered them over to him because of sin. It's because we abdicated. As humanity, we gave up dominion over the earth. And he came in and and took control of that. So did he have authority? Well, we could say at least in this regard, he did have a following, didn't he? And so what he does is he says, I'm going to give you a shortcut. Let's go back to Eden for a minute. What was the big temptation for Eve? It was to be like God, but not have to wait on it. You see, God fully intended to teach man and woman the difference between good and evil. Go to the book of Proverbs, we see that. (laughs) We we find Proverbs showing what that would have looked like. He was going to bring them along, school them as they could handle it, show them. But they didn't want to wait on him. They wanted to be like him at that moment in time. And so here's Jesus and he's waiting on his father. With this plan that means he's going to have to go through a whole lot of things. And what Satan is saying is you really don't. There's a way around this. If you will simply worship me, they're yours. I'm done. I'm turning them over to you. And if he had done that, he could have avoided the crushing of his head, couldn't he? If he could have just convinced him. Is it really so bad? I won't mean it. I I won't mean it when I bow down to it. I'll just bow, and in my mind, I'll be worshiping God. But Satan knew that if the God of heaven bowed to him, that would mean he was the superior, and the plan would be thwarted. So, what do we understand? He's run into a very different son of man, hasn't he? You think about all the sons of men who have walked the earth before Jesus, and they all had their price. They would get an offer of some kind, and, and they would take it. They would try that shortcut, and it worked out horribly every time. But this time, this one is different. And so, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, as he did with all three of these temptations, he says, and I'm going to put it in modern vernacular. You've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. Because you know as well as I know, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Wouldn't it have been nice if the Son of God, that's what Israel was called, remember, if they had listened to that? But this Son of Man is. And he says, I refuse to give in to you in any way whatsoever, because there is no shortcut for me to receive these nations. You see, since Tower of Babel, these nations have been out in the wilderness, and God's now giving them a chance to come back through the sun. But he says, there are things I've got to do for that to take place, and I will not succumb to this temptation to take a shortcut around it, because I understand that full obedience... Full obedience is really the way you show your love for God. That's how it's done. It's not some kind of rote going through the motions. It's where you love Him so much that you would do nothing to hurt Him. And we also understand that by this perfect obedience, the glory of the nations would flow to Him. He didn't have to make a deal. He didn't have to go for a shortcut. In fact, what do we read in Revelation chapter 21? It says, by the light the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring it in, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Why? Because the Lamb is victorious. He did not give in. He did not succumb to this temptation. Two very different stories. But yet the commonality is you've got Satan trying to act like God in both of them. Now, with that as our backdrop, we're going to make sure we don't fall for the lie. I want to share a few thoughts with you on this. One of them is the obvious, I hope, that Satan is not God. But the way that I want us to see it, first of all, is to understand what he's not. Satan is not omniscient it's interesting over the years as I've taught similar things to what I'm teaching this afternoon this is where I've got the biggest kickback from a lot of folks oh I don't agree with you on that he, he knows what I'm thinking <laughs> he's, he's aware of what's going on in my mind and yet Psalm 94 tells us specifically God knows our thoughts he understands us But we don't find that for Satan because Satan's a created being. To think that he's omniscient, to think that somehow he he can get that insight into my mind without me revealing a thing, would put him on a godlike status, which I'm sure he's happy for us to do. We let him get in our head by thinking he's getting in our head, and he accomplishes that goal. But yet, what we've got to understand is that he's not that way, nor is he omnipresent. As God is omnipresent. We don't read of any spiritual being who's got the ability, other than God, to be in all places at the same time. And so we read things in the Bible such as the Spirit of God that dwells in you. In other words, wherever you are, God is. His Spirit is going with you. We don't read that of Satan. And yet sometimes we think when the temptations are really pressing on us day by day by day that Satan is right there like the shadowy figure surrounding us and that he's always present with us. Well, let me give you another thought there about that. We need to understand he's got allies in this. When you look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, that's a frightening passage where it talks about the spiritual forces, the cosmic powers of the age. In other words, he's not the only supernatural being who's turned against God, and it seems they've formed somewhat of this coalition to go against humanity. But let's also not discount the fact, as we saw this morning, that there are many humans who are happy to take on the role of serpents. We think about Pharaoh, we think about Nebuchadnezzar. We think about Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler. Whoever you want to say, they've been willing to take that on. And in his name, whether they say it or not, they're employing all of these hardships on us. We've got to realize that he is not God. He's not omnipresent. I might illustrate it like this. I remember when I was a kid few times going fishing with my father and my uncles and what they would do is they'd take antifreeze jugs and milk jugs and they'd fix a trot line right and and you'd spread it out across the river and you didn't have to be there to catch fish you were employing other tactics might i suggest to you that's exactly what the devil's doing He's got all of these out there. He doesn't have to be present for every one of them. But he's got these forces and he's got humans who have gone to his side. And while he's not omnipresent, we sure want to make sure that we're understanding that he is a danger. And let's add to that also, he's not omnipotent. He's powerful. He's powerful. We read about another heavenly being that killed 185,000 people in one night. We're not discounting that. But what we do want to understand is that he doesn't have power over our body and soul. That's God's department. That's why he has to come to God to get permission to even touch Job. He doesn't have that ability in and of himself. And ironically enough, James says to us, if you submit yourself to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. (laughs) If I'll stand with God, James flat out says the devil's going to be on the run. He's going to be away. And so whereas we sometimes get this idea that he's in my head, he's always around me, he's always tempting me, might I suggest to you, the devil is really the best recycler who's ever lived. He has watched, he's found all the things that tempt us, all the things that bring us down, and he realized that with every generation he can just keep playing these tricks, and it's going to work. But it's when we tip our hat to Him. When we let Him know those things that tempt us, that's when we start getting exploited. Because as powerful as He might be, He is not God. So then, we got to be careful. You see, He's all about words, isn't He? You look at Genesis 3, you look at uh, the temptation accounts of Jesus, And he's still seeking to do that today. He's he's seeking to confuse us about this. And there's a whole host of ways. One of the big things that's really becoming much more of a trend than it has been in years past is to convince everybody that God's simply not real. You start looking at statistics, it's rather alarming. Of the number of our fellow countrymen who no longer believe that there is a God, or at least the God of the Bible. And so we're seeing that what he's doing is he's taking these things and he's convincing people and he's saying you know you really can't trust God because really there is no God and it's working. I would strongly strongly encourage our younger people to be very careful about this. You're you're the prime targets of this. Somewhat in high school, more so in universities. You're going to run into people who are trying to confuse you. Well, they're doing the work of the devil there. They're trying to make you think like like Eve. Maybe he's not that reliable. In fact, maybe he doesn't even exist. You also see the devil encouraging us to believe that God really doesn't care about us. Let me add one to it and talk about these together. And the reason that he's not caring is because he's unloving. How many people can you think of right now who have given up on God because they thought God deserted them? Somebody come to mind? I suspect yes. That we have a hardship, we lose a close family member, we get hit with an illness, we don't do well economically, something. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and it appears that God is not doing anything for us. And Satan has learned that that's a pretty good time to exploit people. It's a pretty good time to to really go after them. And suddenly here's someone saying, well, if God's going to treat me like that, I don't want to serve a God like that. You see, same way with Eve. God's holding back. He's, he, he doesn't want you to have the good life here. We think as well of how many things in which He encourages us to believe that the shortcuts are acceptable and good. And it usually starts something like, I know that God said to do it this way, but... And there we go. There's the shortcut. Really, is there any danger in doing it? And what do we find? We find ourselves out of Eden. We find ourselves on the opposite side. Following this one who's trying to pretend like he's God. And yet, here we've got Jesus that's providing the example. What did Jesus show us? He showed that temptations can oftentimes seem legitimate, but they can always be debunked by the Word of God. You know, we could have justified ourselves every which way in those temptations, couldn't we? We're out here, we're fasting, we're hungry. It's all been for God. And what's it going to hurt if I turn those stones into bread? What's it going to hurt if I get a following by jumping off the temple? And we start listening to ourselves and we become convinced that these things are okay. In fact, they might be good in the long run. It's going to make no difference whatsoever. That's not what Jesus thought. We think about... What he went through should be testimony to us that we do not allow ourselves to ever think that God is telling us to do something that's not important. He is not the circus master with these rings making us jump through them just for the fun of it. Everything is for a purpose to make us more like him. And what does Jesus also show us? He shows us that sometimes it can appear that God is not near, even though he is. We think about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, there's not going to be a temptation that overtakes you, unless you're willing to let that happen. God's going to provide you a way of escape every time. Now, that way of escape may be a difficult course. But there's no way that the devil can have the power to back us into a corner that God can't get us out of. That's what we have to understand with all of this. You ever wondered what it would have been like to be Job? That would have been a terrible thing. And there are times when Job struggled with it. But what what does he show us? He shows us at the end, this is what it looks like to stick with God. But even more so, that's what Jesus shows us. And I hope that's what we're doing. So then, let me just leave you with this idea. Now, there is no shortcut in salvation. There wasn't for Eve. There wasn't for Jesus. And there's not for us either. And I hope that if you're thinking along those lines, you'll take that to heart. That if someone or maybe even yourself, you're, you're trying to find a justification for whatever way of not following the plan of God to stop and to realize this may very well be this, this serpent trying to make me think he's God again, trying to give me a shortcut. No. God's given us a way of salvation. And no matter what the forces of evil may seek to do, When we're standing with God, they'll have to flee from us. That's God's promise. Aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't take the shortcut? Because what that means for us is that that one hanging on the tree knew, this is what I do for the nations. This is what I do to bring people to God. And I hope we're willing to have the same attitude toward Him that I don't want a shortcut. I want to be with you in every way so that I can be with you forever. Those thoughts are on your mind this afternoon and you have just been on the cusp of obeying the Lord but something's holding you back for whatever reason. Please don't allow deception to hold you back any longer. God's way is the way. And I hope you'll make that decision even this afternoon to make Him the true God of your life. If, you can, if we can help you with that now, you can respond as we stand and sing.